This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is July 6, 2023. I'm Scott Glenderbaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's, I don't know, short, quiet summer episode, we have Port, and I guess we could call it a capital strike. I'm going to call it a capital strike on social media. Uh, money for EVs, lots of it, and housing suggestions. And we'll talk about Taylor Swift again. First... Go support the podcast, patreon.com slash politicoast. The biggest news in BC this week is probably the Port of Vancouver. The port, Well, it's not just the Port of Vancouver. It's 30 ports up and down the coastline that are on strike now uh, and have been since, I believe it's Saturday morning, 7,000 workers. It's a fairly massive strike. Uh, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union of Canada uh, has been trying to negotiate with the British Columbia Maritime Employers Association. They haven't had a collective agreement since March 31st, and negotiations are not going well. In fact, they've walked from the table. That is, the uh, employers have walked from the table. So there is no quick end in sight at this point. No, there isn't. And uh, this all, of course, is in the has in the backdrop... Uh kind of persistent inflation and well i think the worst of the supply chain issues have largely gotten hammered out over the last uh two years this is not going to help the uh lingering problems that do exist there uh port of vancouver is like one of the largest ports in canada like handles a huge amount of the goods coming in and out of the region and is this is gonna definitely have knock-on effects if it carries on yeah it sounds like a couple things are still going to make it in and out of the ports in the meantime but for the most part this is going to really start to affect the ability to get things out of this side of the country uh media is estimating 800 million dollars worth of goods go through those ports every day uh, roughly a quarter of the country's total imports and exports so it's not a small thing to have most of that shut down. Uh, I don't think the workers are under any misconception, but yeah, this is a, this is going to be rough. Uh, This is the ever given blocking the Suez Canal of Canada. Only it's a strike instead of a poorly run container ship. The union in this case is asking for uh, an end to the, contracting out uh, protections for future generations and current generations from impacts of port automation and protections for workers from inflation and the cost of living, which I assume would just be raises. I don't know what else that would be. Yeah, I saw there was some reporting in the uh, Globe Mail that they uh, were looking at kind of a one-time signing bonus pl- plus as well as, uh, yes, series of raises. 
Yeah, so an $8,000 inflation adjustment for uh, BC port workers, uh, as well as an 11% raise the first year and a 6% the second year. And amid this contract impasse, you have the employers walking away, which really frustrates the ability to <laughs> reach a negotiated settlement. Uh, this, I believe, falls under federal jurisdiction, so there's pressure on the federal government. I believe the minister is Seamus O'Regan. I've seen him quoted. He's not looking at a legislated back-to-work settlement at this point, although the uh, employers are already calling for that. I've seen mixed calls from other sectors, uh, obviously the union as opposed to that. Uh, the BC government is also hoping for a negotiated settlement, um, but it's a difficult impasse and one of those sectors where it's not like if nurses are on strike, you can see that they need to be back at work instantly uh, or else people die. Um, but, you know, there is that economic argument of is this critical enough that at some point you have to get them back to work? And, you know, a majority government probably wouldn't hesitate as much as the liberals have to federally right now. Well, I'm sure the conservatives are back back to work legislation. So, like, the votes are there. They, they, and, I don't know, the plot's a wild card. It's not happening in their, the ports in Quebec. So, who knows how they'll, uh, they'd come down on it if it uh, went to a vote. They, they well, can they, pursue it but, if they need to. Um, but yeah, like you said, like, some, a huge amount of the goods coming in and out of the country come through this one port. And, you know, it may not be as obvious as, you know, nurses not being at their jobs, but there are probably in there, you know, critical materials and critical products that do have very important uh, uses, potentially in the medical field or a whole bunch of other critical places. And yeah, that will put pressure on them for sure to uh, bring back to work legislation. And if this drags out uh, too long... So yeah, keep your eye on how that negotiation goes. Right. Um, I do think that's worth highlighting here that, uh, you know, well, the issues around cost of living adjustments are fair and everything. Like that's, a, you know, inflation's hit everyone. Uh, and it made sense for the uh, wages to adjust to that. The uh, The automation stuff is not something that I necessarily think it's going to be a a lot of public interest uh, to really uh, cave on that one, at least from the employers uh, and public policy point of view, because there was a report that came out a couple of years ago uh, on how the uh, Port of Vancouver stats up internationally. We have uh, one of the least efficient ports in the world, and some of that's due to some challenges around the somewhat congested lands in the port area and getting stuff in and out. But there's probably also a lot of room for improvement uh, by incorporating more automation into the process. And it's not clear to me that Canada benefits if uh, port automation is slowed down. It's a fascinating report that came out. And it looks like it's an annual report, but it definitely flagged that North America as a whole, our ports suck. Uh, Vancouver was pretty bad. I think the only worse one was, I want to say in Alabama, but it's somewhere in that part of the USA. Uh, 
but like uh, so- BC's other uh, port, major port, also didn't do too well. A lot of the American ports don't fare well, and it. I, I don't think it really got into the why. I did Google some other analyses and. Some of them did highlight that there's actually pretty high automation in many of these American uh, ports, but they still suck. <laughs> and someone in our Slack suggested, like you mentioned, uh, congestion. Like we don't have a great rail infrastructure in North America, which actually limits efficiency in quite a lot of ways. I think some of the more efficient ports, though, are in Asia and East Asia, like in Singapore. Um, not an area I'd know a ton about, but that all said, Protecting workers from automation is not the same as banning automation. In many ways, it's just making sure that contracts are fulfilled. Uh, it doesn't say that you can't. Um, it really depends on how they're structured. Yeah. yeah, it just depends on the contracts, I guess. But, you know, in cases where you're uh, like a general issue in the Canadian economy is that employers have been slow to uh, bring in. Uh, capital-intensive but uh, productivity-enhancing investments in their firms. And this is part of the reason Canada's had low economic productivity growth numbers for years now. It would not surprise me if the same thing is a pretty significant feature of the ports here. And if it's structured in a way that uh, continues to uh, substitute uh workers and labor for uh those sorts of improve uh automation improvements it could have a continual drag on the economy for sure and absolutely the case that if uh the union gets a negotiation where it basically stops making sense to invest if you don't have to keep all of these workers on payroll uh doing the same work they would have um without the automation like the, the economics of that increased investment may not actually be there. And that probably wouldn't be a good thing for the uh, health of the economy or every other job or business that is downstream of the port. I understand the argument fully there, but, you know, the fact is unionization rates have dropped significantly across the private sector in Canada. And despite that, productivity has also gone down across industries so I don't think blaming the unions for trying to make sure people are paid well and have good jobs fully explains the failure of Canadian companies to innovate and get better. Uh, it feels more like profiteering and just, uh, I think there's a know. single factor on any of this. No, but, yeah, you know, for it definitely sure. contributes to it, uh, in places where there is that strong pushback against, those sorts of uh, automation and efficiency improvements. Definitely keep your eye on the federal NDP, though, what they do if the liberals ultimately do end up negotiating this back to work. Possibly the other way this could go is just a forced mediated arbitration, like we are seeing finally come to a possible conclusion in the long-running, now over 120-day dispute between uh, the union out in the Fraser Valley who represents transit workers and the local BC transit operator out there. 
I think we discussed this a few weeks ago when Vince Reddy was appointed by the province to act as the mediator there. He was given 10 days to try to bring both sides to the table. Uh, that <laughs> We blew by that and he got an, an indefinite extension to his mandate from the Labour Minister. And now in the next few days, we are expecting his final report, which may recommend uh, a settled like contract language. And then that will have to go to each side for review. And, you know, it's it's such a mess. People have been without transit for months in the Fraser Valley. And, like, it gets a few stories here and there, especially in, like, local press. I'll link the Fraser Valley Current in the show notes. But that's a long-running strike that really affects people if you can't take your public transit system. So, yeah. I'll be- I guess there's finally some movements were up but man that is that's a long time to trade that out for sure let's jump to federal politics uh more directly we have like a series of follow-ups on the c18 battles there's no like definitive news this week but there's just like a bunch of kind of funny stories in a i don't know uh, like in a sad depressed you know laugh to cope through the pain funny yeah. Like if you're still on Twitter, you're probably making these jokes about the experience there. I don't know anyone still using Twitter. Yeah, I'm not on Twitter, so I don't see those jokes. Uh, first up, Pablo Rodriguez still trying to demonstrate he should not have a job. He was quoted as saying he was surprised that Google decided to do what they said they were going to do and stop doing news in Canada. Really? It's uh, almost like there was a warning that this was an obvious outcome from uh, his actions. Yep. Uh, So that's a mess. The press progress also managed to pull out that Google at least has admitted that when they remove news from all of their services and their searches in Canada, they're only going to remove Canadian sites. That yeah, are eligible under C18. Yeah, because under C18, only uh, Canadian uh, media gets covered by the bill. So it's nothing that uh, would inhibit them from linking to the New York Times, Fox News. Uh, what's Al the one Jazeera, that, whatever. What's that one that's worse than uh, OAN or whatever? Yeah, just the Canadian. <laughs> yeah, just the Canadian uh, media would be the one that would be hit by this. So, you have this situation where the bill that is ostensibly here to save the Canadian media may end up resulting in the hastening of the death of the Canadian media as a big chunk of their traffic goes away, while at the same time uh, giving. American media better access to the Canadian market by removing Canadian competition on two major streams of uh, viewers and consumers. Yeah, the Facebook, Instagram side via Meta is less clear. I could see from their perspective just delisting news entirely and or you know suppressing it. And I think they've already played a bit with that in the algorithms just because. Of all of the blowback. Yeah, since 2016, I believe they downrated uh, news in the algorithm just generally. 
but they haven't removed it entirely and maybe they will just change whatever the value is in the algorithm in Canada to be zero for news, but it's entirely possible they basically put together a blacklist of Canadian media that just doesn't get linked. So that'll be fun. Uh, it's also unclear to me, like, the big thing I've been dumping all my attention into in the last 24 hours has been Threads, which was the new Twitter launched by Meta off Instagram. And it's unclear if Meta is going to allow news on there. There's no ads on that platform yet. But if it's, yeah, it'll be useless if there's no news on there. <laughs> Let's say, well, not totally useless, but pretty useless to me. Um, I guess we'll see. I don't think this battle is done yet, obviously. Um, no, it, it hasn't. And, and the government seems to be uh, continuing to uh, double down, even though everything's pointing to them not actually being successful in turning this back. So uh, earlier Trudeau linked uh, or likened the fight over C-18 to uh fighting in World War II and supporting Ukraine as, you know, an important step in defending democracy, which is a bit of a stretch, particularly when this is in large part a self-inflicted wound by the government when they didn't think through the legislation properly. Yeah, this is pulled out by Michael Geist. Here's the quote. Facebook decided that Canada was a small country, small enough that they could reject our asks. They made the wrong choice by deciding to attack Canada. We want to defend democracy. This is what we're doing across the world, such as supporting Ukraine. This is what we did during the Second World War. This is what we're doing every single day in the United Nations. And I I get like trying to frame Facebook's attack as a hit on democracy because to some extent like delisting news is an affront to democratic norms. So that's a sort of, um, like rational economic thing to do in the face of the new legislative environment, um, which is kind of the problem. But um, yeah, so like there, you can see why the uh, the brain trust that the PMO like came up with that line. Nevertheless, like it's you know a little little hyperbolic to uh, you know imply that trying to uh, basically take money from one industry to push towards a favorite industry is the same thing as, you know, Canadians storming the beaches of Normandy to uh, defeat literal Nazis. Like, they are wildly different things in practice. Yeah, this is... Um, God, that was stupid. Uh, this is also the week that the federal government announced that the government is going to stop advertising on meta which is like a trivial amount of spend like i guess it's not nothing like we are talking millions of dollars a year but for a business like meta they're not gonna lose sleep over it like no it's someone not, else will come it's in not good to space. lose that big of a account but like i don't know they still have other accounts like the liberal party of canada is running four ads right now and the new Democrat Party of Canada is also advertising. So yeah, despite the uh, government saying we're not going to do this, the actual political parties are continuing on with it, even while they're 
key members say how terrible it is and uh, in their roles as government ministers are talking about how they're not going to be advertising on there anymore. So it really feels like a case of the uh, liberals trying to have their cake and eat it too. Anyway, this is all silly. It's going to continue, and I don't know who's going to end up backing down. I mean, the sense I get is there is no general public upswelling of anger over this. And without that, I just don't really see either Google or Meta feeling enough pressure to back down on this. So I will say that uh, Pierre Polyev, I did look earlier, Pierre Polyev has joined threads. He's posted a whole bunch. Uh, Jugmeet Singh has joined threads. He has not posted and he has not followed anyone. So he's just kind of like reserved a profile. Justin Trudeau hasn't even joined. So maybe, maybe they're just behind on their social media. Well, I mean, like everything else, it, it, it probably nothing. has to like run through five PMO staffers to make the decision on it. That's, you know, backlogged in there with, you know, everything else from, you know, vital intelligence uh, reports to, um, you know, what the Minister for Sports and Recreation is going to be doing next weekend when he visits a riding. They simultaneously have too many paths for the bureaucracy and none in other cases. The, the public opinion question is fascinating, and I was trying to look before we started recording for polls, and Abacus did one back in October, and I'm not going to link it because a lot has changed in this discussion and this debate since October. Actually, the poll was done in like mid-late August last year. Uh, at that time, people weren't really aware of the bill or its impacts. They were sympathetic, I think, to the idea of funding news, but when described as you know, should social media have to pay for linking to news sites? People weren't super sympathetic. It was like 40% no to 25% yes. And when specific uh, arguments against the bill were raised, most people said those should be incorporated into the bill. So I think if the Meta and Google hold stick to their guns and like, especially if Google's platform changes significantly, it could be tough for the government to justify this, especially if they're popping up little ads on their platforms. Like you go on Facebook to post a National Post link and it says, sorry, you can't do that in this country because of C-18, which some people are already seeing. Uh, people might get mad at the government rather than social media, which is the exact opposite response in as happened in Australia. But social, you know, the social media firms learned from that one and have adjusted their strategy. Yeah. So... So, unfortunately, we don't have more recent polling. Purely on vibes, the sense I get is that this is not, not this is not really changed too much from those basic numbers. But uh, wish we had some public polling to actually uh, back that up. I'm guessing the pro the government's internals. Actually, I wouldn't say that they they've been. One would hope that if the government was continuing down this road, they'd dirt internals to bat them up. I am not necessarily sure they have their finger on the pulse that well to actually be doing that, but uh, oh, be I'd be very curious to know what the uh, government's public opinion research is showing on this. Next up in interesting decisions by the Canadian government, uh, we have a deal, it looks like, in 
Inc. And this has been discussed a little bit in the news over the past few months, but uh, Stellantis and LG Energy Solutions look like they're going to win big with their plan to build the Nexstar electric vehicle battery plant in Windsor, you mean uh, conti- Ontario. You mean continue building it. Yeah. Uh, they have been guaranteed $5 billion in tax breaks uh, based on production over a 10-year term from the province of Ontario, in addition to another $10 billion from the federal government. Uh, this is $15 billion to make a few thousand jobs. Yes, and this is not the $13 billion Volkswagen plant that uh, was in the news earlier and uh, precipitated this whole showdown over it. So, yeah, when that was announced, uh, Stellantis said, oh, I guess the uh, there's a lot more money out there for plants like ours. Let's say we're not going to be doing any more construction on this plant we've already broken ground on until we secure some additional subsidies. and. That's apparently just what they've done. Listen, Scott, money is fake. <laughs> so uh, apparently we can just throw as much of it at EV manufacturing plants as it takes to make this look like a green country uh, rather than let the U.S. throw their money at it. Because hey, Eventually the bill does come due. And uh, yeah. $30 billion, no, I guess $28 billion between this and the Volkswagen deal. That is some serious money. That that could fund a lot of uh, transit expansion. That could build a whole lot of hospitals. That could go a long way to recapitalizing our aging and decrepit military. Like There is a whole lot of stuff that this money could be spent on. And basically getting into a bidding war with the U.S., over one particular industry is maybe not the best use of that. No, this is terrible. Yeah. So like he- it's, a, it's a 10-year subsidy, and let's assume they're getting 10,000 jobs out of this. Are We, we could just give 10,000 people $280,000 a year. These, these, employer, you know, these employees will be paid pretty well, I imagine. Uh, these manufacturing jobs are high-skilled industries, so I imagine they will be decently compensated, but I can't imagine them getting $280,000 no. a, a year from this. So why? Why do we have to do this? Well, you see, and it's an industry, and it's an industry that uh, looks good for us to have, ergo we need to have it. Whether or not it makes economic sense or is worth the investment. Yeah, And that's... That's ultimately the problem with this is this is the government chasing the latest shiny thing. Like if it, if it wasn't going to be this, it was going to be, I don't know, AI, something along that. This is the Trudeau government deciding that this fits with their general brand proposition on climate and the environment. So they were going to uh, make sure that we have an EV battery plant come hell or high water and... That's what they've decided to do, regardless of the cost. But you know, these are probably not going to be the last people that come with their hands out asking for money. And you know, every time we uh, pony up fifteen billion dollars, eventually that is going to run the uh, the coffers dry, and we won't have any uh, money we could be putting into other important things that would also have a pretty big impact. 
So we could yeah, build really we high speed rail. We could build SkyTrain expansions. We could build houses. We could do lots of things. Yes. And like it's really worth figuring out like not what's the shiny thing, but where our competitive advantages actually are in this and it's it may not be EV batteries, and that is actually fine. We can trade with other countries for them, and the fact is, we are. If it's a race to the bottom, or a race to I don't know whatever this metaphor you. It is a race. Yeah. it's a it's it's kind of like an arms race. I think Maybe Wh- whatever that's whatever the metaphor you want to use is, the U.S. is ten times our size economically. They just have a they can throw a whole lot of money at something in a way that we just can't keep up with and trying to go dollar for dollar with them is inevitably going to result in us losing so maybe we should try for a smarter strategy rather than trying to do a bad strategy harder yeah and like to be fair this isn't like a purely trudeau liberal flaw like a lot of governments fall for this oh, five, like, five of that not, 15 not usually bi- this hard <laughs> yeah five of that 15 billion is coming from uh dud ford's pc party and, and the ontario the province of ontario is less than a third of canada so they're probably getting hooped the most on this uh isn't it like 40 percent of uh the population lives in ontario it's 15 million 14.5 million which is 36%. Okay, so they've lost a little ground, but it's definitely more than 30. All right. Uh, still, bad deal all around. But, like, you know, the classic issue in American politics is the state representative going for the, like, boutique industry of their constituency. Um, and getting, you know, shiny dollars for that. It's, you know, the Harper government's Canada Economic Action Plan signs over uh, grants doled out in ridings that many of their MPs sat in. Um, Like, I double-checked, and this Windsor EV battery plant is in a liberal-held riding right now. Uh, I don't know about the Volkswagen one, but, you know, that southeastern Ontario strip is always... A pretty important battleground politically so there is a bit of that and it's it's not good in the end to be like you know you set out all the reasons why this is not the ideal way to spend a finite amount of money and like canada's not fully finite we can afford to do this but it like it does cost and it means either means we have to cover it some other way in the end um, yeah, and there may even be options. I think we can always spend more, but you know, maybe we have to tax a little bit more in the end. And this doesn't—it's not clear to me that we're going to get fifteen dollar, fifteen billion dollars in economic benefits or thirty billion dollars in economic benefits from these plants. Yeah, and just because we want to be part of the uh, solution to climate change doesn't mean we have to follow this particular path. And there may actually be ways we could complement the U.S.'s industrial push on this rather than competing with them, Uh, most notably critical minerals. Like Rather than spending $15 billion in a subsidy race with the U.S., maybe we should be looking at spending 
that saved money to uh, get the Ring of Fire finally underway and actually extract the minerals that are going to go into these batteries and other green technology. We, there's not and necessarily build, one yeah. specific point on the supply chain that is best in every and all case for any country to do, and we should play to our strengths, which is we have a lot of the stuff that goes into this. Let's let's focus on getting that going and not uh, try and do a subsidy race we can't win. Yeah. One thing we could spend a lot of money on, as I mentioned, is housing and we love to talk about when political parties have ideas for housing and we don't have any new ones today, but we have re-announced ones from NDP Jugmeet leader, uh, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, who was in Toronto this week. So he had to talk about houses that fit Torontonians budgets. Um, it's a press release to catch the Toronto media, but it is a national policy as far as I can tell. Uh, Two policies that have been announced both by the NDP and Liberals, at least in the past. First, remove the federal portion of the GST and HST on the development of new affordable homes. Makes sense because why don't we just reduce the cost of housing by 7%? Yeah, like. Or 5% if we can overnight. Yeah, ultimately that tax goes into the rents that get paid uh, by the renters on this. Uh, and if not or the purchasers it any it yeah, gets yeah like it, but people only will purchase or finance and build the stuff if it actually makes sense and they can recover those costs on this and that ultimately has to come from somewhere and that's from the uh, revenue that the projects generate and that revenue is from renters so yeah it's one of these like things that would obviously help and is just kind of weird we haven't done it yet like there's a whole list of housing policy ideas out there and like right now the big challenge is not coming up with innovative new policies to solve the housing crisis it's to put into action all of the ideas that are already out there but nobody's actually done the hard work of getting over the finish line and you know, maybe it won't solve the last one or two percent, but uh, we could, you know, at least hit the 80 percent solution if we just did all the things that most people agree need to be done on housing. Yeah, Justin Trudeau in 2015 promised to do this and uh, hasn't yet. So good to do. Uh, the other proposal is the more vague use federal lands strictly to build rental or first time home buyers homes that truly fit in a people's budget. So the latter part caveats it in a way that's extremely vague, but I think we even talked about this was in the conservative platform of using uh, federal lands, and that drove us down a rabbit hole of figuring out how much federal land there is. And there was actually a lot of random stuff in their uh, repertoire. So there is land out there that they could build housing on. Hey, they could they could redevelop Granville Island into affordable housing. I would not recommend that, but... There's options out there, right? And they have a lot of land in cities, too, that's not always recognized. Yeah, so it, ultimately this is a re-announcement and it's probably not going to amount to anything, but, uh, you know, better that than nothing. Well, and it's good to see the political parties talk about the importance of housing and the importance of building more housing to get the market under control and just to get 
places that are affordable for people to live. So, you know, they're not talking about further taxing foreigners, and I appreciate that. Uh, they are talking about, like, dealing with some of the fundamental issues. Not substantively enough, but it's in the right direction, at least. And damn, I was disappointed there wasn't more in here. And finally, we talked, I don't know, last week, a couple, weeks, a couple ago, weeks ago, about that conservative MP from Edmonton who wanted to launch a parliamentary complaint or some other made-up term about Taylor Swift not coming to Canada on her next tour. And, well, wouldn't you know, a liberal politician, the prime minister, in fact, has elevated the so the pleas for her to come I mean, with a tweet reply. Yeah, a little context on the first one is that uh, there was a liberal that uh, chimed in, said they would second it. I don't ever know if it actually went anywhere. It's not really a, like, normal procedure so like maybe that second to happen it was a moment of bipartisanship um but now more than just the backbenchers have weighed in as uh the prime minister went into reply guy mode and started begging taylor swift to uh come to canada and tweet including a slightly yeah. cringe version of like trying to work in like lyrics and song titles into the post so he starts off, it's me, hi. He doesn't do the next line, I'm the problem, it's me, because, obviously. Uh, so it's weird that his tweet just, like, pivots to, I know places in Canada would love to have you, so don't make it another cruel summer, which I, you know, I listened to some Taylor Swift, but I didn't know that she had written a song called Cruel Summer. I was thinking he was making a Bananarama reference for... But I did learn she did write a fairly popular song called Cruel Summer. So news to me. Uh, he finishes, we hope to see you soon. It's it's fine. Honestly, I'm not really offended. Uh, I'm really curious if any journalists have launched the ATIP request to see how many people got to proofread this tweet before he hit send. Um, it'll be really disappointing to get that result because it's going to be too many <laughs> and it'll be like three years before we find out i, I joked it's probably gonna be like 18 months which is also crazy remember when justin trudeau promised to run the most transparent government ever open by default <laughs> yeah so you see that's the things he should be working on rather than this like i think i have a little more of a negative view of this like it's Fringy, I'd even go so far as to say a little unstatesmanlike. But also, like, there's a lot of stuff that could use some work right now at, in getting the country working properly. And it's been, I think, pretty well documented at this point that uh, right now, just like the PMO is just a huge bottleneck on a whole bunch of stuff in government right now because they've. Uh, also, in a reversal of their pledges as an opposition party, have run run like the most centralized governments in Canadian history. In fact, I believe the most centralized government. Um, so, like any time that's spent trying to cringely begging pop stars on social media to change their tours uh, to come to Canada is time that is not being spent on the long list of serious problems the country has. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather have, you know, 
sprint that doesn't break the bank, then uh, have Taylor Swift come through Vancouver. Uh, I'm, he can walk and chew gum at the same I time. I mean, the well, problem is he's in, not. Here in theory, he could. Uh, if he was chewing gum. So, like, I, would... joke, I joked about how long this would take, but realistically, I think it was probably bounced back and forth a couple of times between, you know, mid-level... Uh, calm staff and eventually just signed off on probably less than half an hour of work. Uh, they weren't going to magically fix the housing crisis in that time. And especially the people working on this are the comms teams, not the policy wonks. I think there is a value in a democracy of having relatable and I almost want to say authentic set I don't... Uh, politicians. I know he doesn't do authenticity or he like fakes authenticity through like calm stuff well, yeah but being able to at least like engage people who aren't necessarily following politics closely and go oh look you know justin trudeau you know no one's gonna vote for him because of this but at least it like makes him a little more human in the same way that like Stephen Harper went to hockey games and like cheered for things or politicians put on jerseys or say they like music it, like it's all part of the game it's fine. It doesn't really hurt, honestly, in my mind. Like, it's not impeding the ability to do things more than many other structural issues are. So I, I kind of have two thoughts on that. Um, one is I'm old enough to remember when uh, would you have a beer with him being the uh, one of the criteria on which candidates was judged got uh, roasted pretty hard and for good reason. Uh, and this is just the uh, 2023 version of that. And so you just don't like democracy. <laughs> you just want like a merit uh, technocracy, right? I mean, I don't think it worked great for having uh, George W. Bush win the would rather have a beer with competition. And that like that became one of like, the marks in his favor when he was running for election and re-election. Like there, there does need to be a whole bunch of stuff that ought to be more important than that even if humans are annoyingly irrational about it in practice um but uh like the second point is yeah harper did some of that stuff and like i think he even like guest starred on burdock mysteries or at least had a cameo appearance in uh one episode and whatnot and like yeah you're you're missing the most famous line of harper's at all is i too like television <laughs> Oh yeah, well that was a uh, that was a net an anti Netflix tat a anti Netflix tats ad. I also feels a little for, full circle on that was in the eighteenth um from like the around the election uh, in twenty fifteen. Um, but yeah, anyway, as I was saying, something you may not know about me is that I love movies and TV shows. Yes, I think I think he called out Breaking Bad as his favorite one, which just also feels a little off brand. But um, anyway, circling back, um, I think this also um, kind of well, some of those other ones worked. I think this one doesn't as much beyond just the general cringe we talked about right up at the start. Is that like it? It leans into a negative up. Uh, like a, a negative that exists out there about Trudeau, that he's overly focused on kind of like the flashy celebrity kind of being more about style than uh, the substance of governing. And, you know, for 
all of Harper's faults. You could never say he was more style than substance. Uh, mostly because the style was set at zero with him. Um, so like it, those ones didn't play into that like negative stereotype. Just on like a how you the art of politics level of this, in the way that this one kind of does and kind of gets people ir- irritated about it for that reason. I think if Trudeau was serious, as the Global News article it will link to um, breaks out, uh, if he were serious about bringing her or others were, uh, they would build a new stadium. And, you know, that's a an a incredibly fraught realm to go down in terms of uh, public policy debates, as any municipality will know. But, like, it's just an economic decision at some point for someone like Taylor Swift and her touring company. You need a venue that can hold 50,000 people and or more and has a population base. So you need to put that in downtown Toronto, basically, and... I mean, um, as long as we're deciding like a few thousand jobs is worth fifteen billion dollars in subsidies, you know, you you could this... get Taylor Swift here for under fifteen billion dollars. I think. Yes, yeah, for sure. I think there's a cheaper way to uh, do that for sure. There's a solution: <laughs> build a stadium for uh, Taylor Swift. Yeah, take the corporate subsidy money and build uh, giant venues. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.